to abandon eventually except science fiction or fantasy. Although I wrote 11 novels and many short stories which were not science fiction or fantasy, they all contained the element of the projected personal unconscious or projected collective unconscious and were simply incomprehensible to, to, to anyone who read them because they, it would require you to accept my premise, which essentially was that each of us lives in, in a unique world. Dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We are your personal dickheads. We may be in another reality. We may be in one based on our perceptions. And if we're in Anthony's, it's a really scary world. That's true. <laughs> oh, my God. He's really tired tonight, folks. But Larry and I both took naps. So we're going to be on fire. And hopefully Anthony will be, too. But we're really excited to talk to you about Eye in the Sky. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm David Agronoff, author of Ring of Fire and Punk Rock Ghost Story. I'm Anthony Trevino. And, and I'm... I'm <laughs> and? <laughs> and I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. All right. Um, so I wanted to do this off the top because we've been doing this at the end of every episode, but that's not working for us. So I would like to put the word out there that we would really like more feedback from our listeners. Wait, did you want me to it's like not a say requirement. what I do? Is that, is that what that was for? Yeah, that oh. was the pause. Oh, I'm Anthony Trevino, the author of the horror comic Fruition. That'll never end because it'll never, it'll... Just never continue on. And then uh, King Space Void, I'm also a contributor to Clash Media and occasionally Tom Holland's Terror Time. Okay, good. I got my resume out there now. And I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, uh, we're your personal dickheads. So um, just to get this out there at the beginning, we definitely would like more feedback. We want to know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what you like, what you don't like. What you want more of, you can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, and all those fun places. Yeah, I think that more engagement with people would be really helpful. I tried to do that the other day on Facebook by asking a question about cosmic puppets and got nothing. Yeah. Dead. Dead zone. Man, you you guys sound really needy. Oh, I don't think it's needy, but we have this platform to talk about this stuff. We might as well use it sometimes. Maybe we're just so badass. Everyone is afraid to talk to us. After that Adjustment Bureau episode, I would understand if people didn't want to talk to me. (laughs) Okay, I don't want to dwell on this, but yes, please um, give us some feedback if you got it. Um, Don't worry, if you're just enjoying listening to the show, that's fine too. Do you want David to stop cracking the whip anytime we slightly veer off course? (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. Because I would enjoy that. Anyway, Dad, what's next on the the, uh, agenda? Uh, we have some PKD news. All right, what's going on in the world of PKD, David? Well, there is going to be a new via- virtual reality game by from a studio called Secret Location in Toronto and Los Angeles. I guess they're based in both cities. And they're adapting a PKD story for VR, and it's going to debut with a VR experience at the Venice Film Festival next month, maybe this month, by the time... You hear this, 
And it's the first ever adaptation of Philip K. Dick's work straight into VR. Now, there's Blade Runner VR, but it's based on his world, not an actual story. So this story is The Great Sea, which w- that's the letter C, not the uh, ocean-like thing. Not the body of water. Not the body of water. So The Great Sea was first published in 1953. <laughs> the story is about a post-apocalyptic r- world ruled by a computer that requires yearly sacrifices by a nearby tribe. So Sacrificing to the artifact. Yeah. And so that should be interesting. Hopefully we get a chance to try that VR experience at some time, but that's a brand new thing. And there was also some publication news of a new book about PKD on film. And guess what? My notes say Anthony got this book. (laughs) (laughs) My notes say. So if for those who don't know, Arrow Films put out really kind of awesome, high-quality versions of more kind of indie films, horror films, stuff like that. I I would say they're kind of the criterion for... Not just horror fans, but sci-fi fans and stuff like that. For so. just, like, books on film? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, no, 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 not not books on film. Arrow puts out quality Blu-ray DVD releases of the film. So you, the oh, way, the way, so how Criterion puts out, like, Blood Simple. Uh, so they put out movies and books. All the Akira Kurosawa stuff that Criterion's done. Yeah. Arrow does that, but for movies such as The Stuff. Ah, Larry um, Cohen. Um, yeah. Great movie. Um... So they recently, I don't know how many books they've put out, but this was really cool, and David actually brought this to my attention. Um, they did a Philip K. Dick on film, and it's written by Greg Rickman. And so, indulge me while I read you the back copy. The now legendary right. <laughs> All right, take two. The now legendary writings of Philip K. Dick have inspired 14 feature films and four television series, none of which he ever saw. Many of them have been widely seen and highly influential. They include Blade Runner, Total Recall, Minority Report, which you can listen to episodes on here. On Dickheads. The Man in the High Castle, and most recently, Blade Runner 2049, although I'd argue that that's a sequel to the movie and nothing Dick did. Man in the High Castle coming in December. On Dickheads. (laughs) In Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Borrowing his inspired ideas, few of them really utilize the thought behind them in the author's unique imagination. This book reviews all of the above films and television shows from, as much as possible, the perspective of Philip K. Dick himself, which I thought was pretty interesting. For most of his life as a housebound scrivener of pulp science fiction, Dick nonetheless had distinct <laughs> ideas about movies and how his work should be filmed. I know it kind of references him like he's James Caan in Misery. <laughs> right. Yeah, right? <laughs> <clears throat> This book, let me, let me take it again. This book incorporates his thought about visual media into a study of how a commercial system of film production grinds an insomniac's electric sheep into sausages for the masses. Some of them, it must be granted, rather tasty. You about to say something, David? No, that's just gross. And it's written by, uh, Greg Rickman, who actually has written the biography to the High Castle, Philip K. Dick, A Life, 1928 to 1962. In the Ooh, anthology, I quote that a lot in our episode today. In the anthology, The Science Fiction Film Reader, which, uh, Rickman also edited, I believe. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to checking this book out and we're gonna try to get Rickman on the podcast so I can interview him about it, but, um, I'm excited. Yeah, that sounds totally awesome now there is one little caveat you have to make about ordering this book oh so when i ordered this book it was 
advertised on Amazon as a hardcover for roughly $30. When it showed up in my mailbox, I realized that it is a little bit smaller than a trade paperback, and it's definitely not a hardcover. So It's a cool paperback. Yeah, but... it's awesome, but it's listed as a hardcover. It's listed at $30, and it's definite. I, I, I felt like Amazon tricked me. So... I reached out. They're going to send me a replacement copy, whatever. But I just want to make people aware of it. Maybe there's another reality where Anthony got the hardcover. Maybe that Anthony is a lot nicer than he <laughs> on the Adjustment Team episode. Um, <laughs> so if you're looking to buy it, just be aware that you might not receive the hardcover. And I would make sure what you're, you're paying what, for what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah, that, sounds, that book sounds awesome. And I look forward to reading it myself. Um, and maybe... Well, you know, we're going to do episodes on all the different movies at one point or another. So it also has really killer uh, book covers throughout throughout it. I thumbed through it, and there's yeah, some really awesome artwork in it. Yeah, PKD covers over the years, which you know we talk about each time. So next is our dick-like suggestions. Anthony, do you want to go first, or should I? So I have a semi-dick-like suggestion, which is the film. Are you laughing at me, Larry? I'm laughing at semi-dick. So I have a. I have a loose dick-like suggestion, (laughs) which is the film Extinction. I think it's a Netflix film. Mm -hmm. It's about a guy who is suffering these visions of a future attack, and maybe about a half an hour into the film, it turns out that these visions are real. And I don't really want to spoil the twist for anybody, but the twist is why I felt like it was very PKD-esque. Yeah, the twist was very pkd um, there's some dumb stuff in it, but overall I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it, I, I didn't feel like I wasted my time, but I, I definitely felt that there were echoes of Dick in it. Yeah. I saw this movie as well because I, you, um, prematurely made a Dick like suggestion to us in, in the adjustment team, uh, pre-show. And so I watched it and I thought that, um, yes, the twist is very PKD. And the interesting thing about this is the direct to, Netflix movie, although it was originally intended by Universal to be a theatrical release. Really? Yeah, but... Um, Michael the, Pena stars in that, right? Yeah, Michael Pena, and it's a second-time director, but the first time the director ever did, like, a big... Like, I think the first movie he did was a rom-com. And so, this was a... What I liked about it was that even though it was really low budget, they tried to make a very big scale um, with the things that are happening in the visions and everything. And, and I, I don't want anybody to, to go watch this movie with illusions that it's amazing, but it's fun and it's interesting. And if you look at it as like kind of a pulpy shitty sci-fi movie, it kind of goes above that. You know what I mean? In, in, in little ways, but I, I liked it too overall. Like it's not great. But. It doesn't focus on some of the areas long enough that it should to make it a better movie yeah um, or the better sci-fi movie or is it just it, it just it has in different areas it has really grand themes that it kind of touches on that it could have done more with instead okay. of the pew 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 stuff yeah but some of that pew 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 stuff like was better done was, than was really well done yeah for a low budget movie for sure mm-hmm. right yeah so I just don't want people to think we're saying that got this it, is dude. a five star masterpiece we got it we got it okay alright <laughs> Okay, we're done with that. So uh, my dick-like suggestion, I have two dick-like suggestions this time. So the first is a, a novel cal- called Now 
Now That You Are Here, which is a YA sci-fi novel by Amy Nichols, who I met at um, Comic-Con. And she was just a really cool person, and she was really into Philip K. Dick, and we had lots of discussions about that. And so I wanted to check out her novel, and it is a novel – it's a YA novel, and it's kind of a sappy romance – but it also involves um, multiverses, quantum physics, and chaos theory. And I just thought it was really neat that she was able to do all that in, in a book that's very YA, you know, and it's focused for a YA audience. And I thought it was neat that she got all those things in. And uh, it's published by Knopf, so it's a pretty big deal. And there's a sequel. I'm going to read that soon, but I haven't even written my book review for it yet, uh, but I really liked it. And then the other one that I have is Burning Sky by Weston Oaks. And I'm not going to say a ton about it because we interviewed Weston for a future episode of Dickheads. But let me just say that this is a uh, war novel with monsters, Orastian gods, alternate universes and perceptions, histories, time shifts. It's very PKD. So I was shocked when Weston told me that he had not read very much PKD in his life because it is very Philip K. Dick. And so that is not out yet. It comes out next month, but you can pre-order it now. Burning Sky by Weston Oaks. If you want to read some of his sci-fi stuff that is already released, he has a trilogy called The Grunt Books. The first one is Grunt Life, and it's about PTSD, and it's an alien invasion kind of military um, sci-fi thing, but it's also very good. He's also made a name for himself, too, in the horror community. With, yeah, uh, I believe what was that his first not I don't know if it's his first book, but one of his earlier books, Scarecrow Gods. That was his first. That was his first and it won the Bram Stoker Award for best first novel. Yeah. So and he also has a series of military horror books that are kind of like X-Files meets like special forces called so, was the Team. rock supposedly supposed to be in the adaptation of that? He was attached to SEAL Team 666 for a little while. So but those books are, you know, those books sound really pulpy and silly, but they're actually really good. If it wasn't called SEAL Team 666, I would be so on board. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know that's a hard title. It's, but you know, that's but why that's, they sold sells. a lot of those yeah, books with sells. that title. Yeah. So, you know, uh, take it as it is. But, uh, Larry, do you have a dick like suggestion today? Well, I have a dick like adjacent thing to talk about. A dick adjacent? <laughs> yeah. The, Three of us went to see Tim Powers at Tim Powers' event. Turns out that Tim Powers is a very interesting person. And also, so is his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony and I had, a, and I had the chance to talk, uh, talk to her outside for a while. And they are great people to get to know. If I was like 10 years older, I would totally want to be friends with that guy. Yeah. It was really interesting talking to his wife because it felt like speaking to somebody from a completely different it's she's obviously from a different generation but just how she carries herself how, what she was saying kind of what she was wearing the way her hair was styled it, right. it, I, it felt like we were she was like a, a it felt like Larry and I had traveled back into time and it was she was classic yeah she was yeah she was classic <laughs> her cigarette case was one of those classic metal cigarette cases right? that my grandma used to always use and I just thought it was really awesome. She was super cool to talk to and really friendly and really cool. We should note that the reason why this is Dick adjacent is that um, Tim Powers was very good friends with PKD. Yeah, good call, Larry. Yeah, we did. Um... All right, so that's it for all the segments before we get into the book. But uh... oh, wait, 
we had questions. Oh yeah, we have one. We have questions this time. So Do one we? of the well, yeah, I put out a thing on different social media platforms because I just thought it might be I don't know break it up a bit. I wanted to mix it up a little bit. So only got two questions. The hey, first man. question is from uh, my uh, buddy Brandon, <laughs> or as I like to call him, Jean Claude Brandam. Um, and he wanted to know if we could live in any of the adapted dick worlds, which one would we choose? Only the ones that have been adapted into film? I think that was the kind of the gist of his okay. question, but we could go with the books too. I mean, I, I, I already know which one I would probably prefer if I had to from the adapted films. Wow, I haven't even thought of that. So. But in the books, I think whichever, I believe it's in the, ma- I, in the man who japed. I don't know if I want to live in that world, but I just kind of want to live in the place where they go to watch the uh, kind of Cronenbergian people form into each other and then have sex with one that's another. That's the that, world Jones made. Are you sure that's the world yeah. Jones made? Yes. I want yeah. to live there. And if I and in if the I post nuclear, none of them are ideal, David. <laughs> you just want to go to a fucked up weird circus where they bring me heroin? Yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Kind of. Oh, God. Um, no. no. Um, but, well, th- th- I struggled with this because none of them are what about, ideal. What about the yeah. movies, though? If that if that's your choice for the books, what's what's your movie choice? I don't know. That Mars Colony on Total Recall seemed pretty cool. Right? Laid back? <laughs> pretty chill. As long as you like Pepsi and not Coke. And yeah. lots of radiation. Yeah. Um, I would, if I had to, I would live in Minority <laughs> Report because at least in that one, no one's going to kill me. But it would, um, you don't know that. But it would constantly be like was... living in a lens flare. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Well, the, I think Minority Report is the one that's the least, like, where you, you could have a normal life if you were, like, somewhere besides, like, where the story takes place. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, if I really wanted to get away from things, I could always visit Peter Stormare for eye surgery. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> and uh, by the way, did you guys see the video? There's a video floating around of Peter Stormare talking about how he lies to Hollywood execs about knowing every European accent. Yeah. <laughs> because he's like, they don't know anyways. Right. <laughs> it was really funny. And that's why so. he's the best. That's why he's Peter Stormare. Um, Larry, is there any PKD world you would want to live in? I'm struggling to find one in the films, but since you mentioned the man who japed, that uh, that relax planet that he went to, where that chick's just hanging out naked on the front lawn and everything is taken care of. Oh, is that where it's playing? It, it's, it's that alternate kind of reality it's they're playing jazz music in the background yeah yeah that it's would like be everything chill. is laid laid back and yeah. and relaxing i don't want to live in that housing community though where <laughs> somebody narks on me for saying something like fuck off david <laughs> yeah because i'd be forced into that block meeting every other but that, day but that no no you're not there though you're not in the block party area you're mm-hmm. you're in the uh recovery no planet. one no one wants to live in the world Isn't that in japan of, uh, it's on a different planet. Oh, it was Remember? on a different planet. I thought it was in like just like a part of like, no, an not of not the not where those two guys live. The okay. no one wants to live in the uh, blasted out w- w- wasteland of second variety. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no one does. I know. I'm I'm trying to think of a good one in the films, but there's really not a 
not a very good place to live in any I, of those I think movies. Minority Report. I think, minor- I think David's right with Minority Report. I think that's as nice as Unfortunately. Because at least you'd be able to have those weird cars that go up buildings, and that would be kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have so many products to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> and everywhere you go, ads pop up. Yeah, just yeah. for you. Just for you. Thank you, Steven Spielberg. All right, Brandon, I you're probably not listening, but... We answered your question. All right. And do you have another one? So, friend of the podcast, horror author Ryan C. Thomas had a question for David. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a question I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask anyway. David. Yes, sir. Ryan wants to know, of all the books we've read so far, including the short stories, which one has the best sex scene? Wow. <laughs> Well, PKD doesn't really write sex that great. Are you just trying to get me to talk about sex? I think that was what Ryan wanted to do, yes. Well, dude, if we were doing the a Clive Barker podcast, we'd talk about sex all day. The Wrath but, James White cast? Right. I, 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 I don't want Wrath to beat me up, but I'm, <laughs> I've only read one of his books. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I would talk about it if i I mean like no look he really doesn't but in eye in the sky we're going to talk about it today boy is there a scene where the the main character says something and i just was it was so cringy because of how clinical it was i already have notes on it okay cool yeah all right let's let's get into it then but but i would say that if we were doing a clive barker podcast i would get into it i'm i'm not squeamish about that stuff can we do a clive barker podcast called the sons of celluloid If we only did movies. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Well, no, look, um, I'm not, I'm not squeamish about that stuff. If, if PKD does it, I'll talk about it. It, that's the language. I just, there's certain words I don't like to say. It's not, it's not sex I don't want to talk about. And by the way, I wrote Flesh Trade. Right? We just assumed all the sexy scenes were yeah, written we're, by Ed. were written by Ed. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. There's, there's, there's sexy sex in my books. Punk Red Ghost Story. Yeah, yeah, there's some sexy sex. There's some sexy sex. I'm not again. No, no, dude. <laughs> dude, no one's trying to shame you, bro. We're just. We're I'm just, just saying, flesh we're, trade. We're just as they used to say in PKD's time, having a gas. Having yeah. a gas, all right. We're just japing you. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. All right, let's get on to Eye in the Sky. <laughs> all right, so this book was published in 1957. David. What was happening in 1957? Can we get a jingle for this part of the podcast? <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah, we might have to. You want something jingle. jaunty? Yes. Okay. So, uh, we've already done a book that was published in 1957, so we've already established some things. This like... isn't Elvis's pelvis, is it? No, this is right. the, s- this is the <laughs> same year that, as we t- talked about last month, this is the same year that Sputnik was launched in, oh, the, yeah. in the Little Rock 9. It wasn't the same year that Elvis's hips caused mass hysteria, hysteria mass across hysteria. No, the land. No, but that was the year this was written, hmm. 1955. So, uh, but 1957, one thing that I did not note last time. The 57 Chevy Bel Air came out. <laughs> well, that's true. The average monthly rent was $90. Holy fuck. Wow. So that's how far back we're talking. But um, I think what's really important to note what was happening then, and we'll get more into this later, but this is two years after the McCarthy hearings started. So, uh, but, or, yeah, three years after the McCarthy. Yeah. 
So, but 1957 was, you know, pretty far back. And if you think about the entire, uh, history of space travel as a, as a human species has happened since this book came out. Right. So that's pretty crazy to think about. So let's go on to the writing and publication history of Eye in the Sky. So Eye in the Sky was written in February 1955, and he wrote it in two weeks. I was just about to ask, is this the book he said he wrote in two weeks? I cannot imagine writing the first draft of this in two weeks. Right. Right. Well, I have a quote about that later, but the original title that PKD had for it was With Opened Mind. Oof. Yeah, I in the Sky is a better title. Do we all agree? Agreed. Yeah, let's not waste any time on that. With Opened Mind is a terrible title. (laughs) It's it's, it's really bad. So after he wrote this right at... Would you say he wrote it with an open mind? Because he was just hunched over his typewriter sweating? Yeah, he probably was. He was, this was, he admitted that he did uh, a lot of amphetamines while writing Bennies. this. So yeah. He just click clacking away. So that, that theory that Greg Rickman has on the back of the PKD on film, he probably was housebound during the writing <laughs> by in the sky. Yeah, right? Well, it's interesting so, too about that is because even in the back here, it says, unlike Philip K. Dick, he doesn't take snuff and is not a visionary genius. I've never heard it referred to as snuff. snuff? So when I first read this, I went, I mean, I, I hope you're not taking snuff. Is that like a weird way? Yeah, what is this? Is that like a 1700s? Weird, is that a weird currency now? I'll, you, you write this article for me and I'm going to pay you in these videos. Oh no, snuff is tobacco that you snort. Oh. So, um, I in the Sky was written right after the world Jones made. So, in the line of actually writing. Interesting. Uh, it was right after Jones and before he tried his hand again at another literary novel, Mary and the Giant, which wasn't released until years later. It's out now, right? Yeah, yeah. it's out now, but it wasn't released. Are we going to do it? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, we it was released. We kind of have to. It was released in, after his death. So, um, but yeah, uh, Mary and the Giant was the next one that he wrote. Well, it's interesting. Don't you think that this came right after Jones? Jones was a mess of different storylines tying together. This is a much cleaner version of tying different stories together. Yeah, yeah. The, some because of the, they all coalesce. They, they come together. They're relevant to right, one another. Exactly. So, so exactly. each, each, kind of world they live in is its own kind of unique story but they they link together much better in jones where it was yeah like watching three different movies you like watching three different movies right they link together better <laughs> in eye in the sky than you said jones but uh, uh no but that was my point was oh, watching yeah, yeah. three jones is is like three separate narratives that never ever come together come together right. or very like tangentially re- related to each other eye in the sky everything matters it's mm-hmm. a, each one is building on the next one. Yeah, I think Eye in the Sky succeeds at the thing that he wanted to do with World Jones made, narratively speaking, much better. Yeah, I wasn't lied to about a radioactive hitman either. <laughs> True. Uh, can you show it. me on the doll where the radioactive hitman hurt you? Nowhere! That was the problem! <laughs> Alright, so... Um, he sweat. He sweated and then got shot. I, I saw this quote. And they cut his head off. And then they cut his head off. That's what it was. I saw this quote that was from a Ed Meskey's review. I don't know who Ed Meskey is, but he reviewed Eye in the wow, Sky. Wow, why don't you just 
Shout out talk- to Ed Meskey. <laughs> Shout out to Ed Meskey. <laughs> Why don't you just talk poorly about Ed Meskey some more, David? <laughs> but he said, The roots of Eye in the Sky are in the group mind of such stories as Damon Knight's Four in the One, Four in One, 1953, a story Dick is on record as admiring, and Frederick Brown's What Mad Universe, 1949, a tale of bizarre realities alternate to our own, Figments of One Man's Imagination, Dick told Ed Meskey in an interview how important it was to maintain the pace of the book, making each adventure shorter than the one before it, which Mm -hmm. was something that you commented on when we were talking about it offline. So David means me. He's pointing at me. (laughs) Sorry. The dickhead to my left, which is Anthony. Um, Yeah, so... We'll talk later about the pace of that, but that's interesting that he he very specifically made because it's funny because on the back cover of the book it talks about the um, the communist world, the communist reality, but it's funny because that one seems so less consequential to the book compared to the religious one. um, Just by its size, just by its size, but that was in purpose. That was a, yeah, I noticed that too. So on the writing of it, here's this quote. I found the quote. Um, I in the sky, I wrote in two weeks. I don't know where I got the dialogue from. It just rolled out of me. It only took two weeks to write the first draft, but I could, uh, but I could do it now. I'm far, I couldn't do it now. I'm far too tired. And then, uh, yeah, so definitely the two weeks was the, The amphetamines. We're, we're just, just clack, 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 clack. He's like, yeah. And then we go to this world, and then she turns into a fucking spider because her name was Silky. I saw it coming. <laughs> so in an interview with Paul Williams, he said, he asked PKD, when did you start taking them? And quoted amphetamines. And he said, well, in the 50s. Williams. So early on in your career? PKD. Yeah, um... By the time I wrote Eye in the Sky and I attributed my speed writing, my rapidity, my high productivity and pushing myself to the amphetamines, and then I find now I can do exactly the same without. But it's crazy to me that, I mean, I don't know if you have anything about how many drafts it went through, but if he wrote Jones sober, and it's such a mess, narratively, in this... He wrote in two weeks. Did he say that he wrote Jones sober? I I couldn't remember, but even so, Eye in the Sky is a much more expertly structured story. It had heavy revisions. Did it? It How many drafts did it go through? Um, Well, we'll get to that. I have quotes on that. Um, But it went through heavy revisions um, specifically because... Ooh, that's a hell of a teaser, David. <laughs> Don Wolheim specifically wanted to change the religious aspect because in, in the original draft, you know in the original draft, the religion in the first part of the book was Christianity yeah. in the first draft. Well, it still it, is, basically. It still basically is. It says the Bob, but honestly, that's that's just... It's supposed to be Christianity. Window dressing. Yeah. So, and then there's, quote, but no matter how he wrote it, he promptly sent the manuscript off under the title with open mind to the Scott Meredith Literary Agency in New York. It was received on February 15th, 1955, two years before it would see publication. Indeed, the man who japed shortly written after Eye in the Sky saw publication first. 
What took so long? The manuscript was apparently welcomed at the agency, and the reader thought, quote, very odd, off trail, but good of its kind, uh, good of its kind. He suggested selling it to Ballantine Books first, but they had several other publishing houses pass on it. It didn't sell until its 11th go around and second try at Ace. So it was a second draft at Ace after some extensive rewriting. Wolheim at Ace liked it, but, quote, and this was in a letter that Don Wolheim wrote. He said, I was very reluctant to do it. I enjoyed it immensely, but paperbacks were in a young state and we didn't want to offend anyone. Here was a book that would offend religious people. God enters it, the eye, the eye of God. He feared that the American Legion might object and other groups. When read, I before we published it, and when we talked about it, he had been a socialist in his youth, so he took a chance. If they argue, if they argue, but no one complained. Hmm. And so, yeah, so Wolheim originally passed. Similar to that uh, test audience that we had for, you know, Adjustment Bureau. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and so... The times they are a-changing back. Yeah, so that there was clearly a second draft where... Because Don Wolheim, you know, just... He, 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 he was afraid of the whole religious aspect, and I think they asked him to change it away from Christianity, and that's how we ended up with the whole... The Bob storyline. So I have a question for you guys. Yeah. In these early books, do you think that Dick was being batted around by his publishers and sort of taken advantage of and molded and formed instead of, you know, you know, he, he, even in his interviews, he doesn't sound like he truly believes in his material. So if someone from the outside says you have to change to this, it seems that Phil K. Dick would immediately change that thing instead of fighting for it. And that seems to happen in every book so far. There's massive revisions. There's massive cuts. I have a kind of a... That's a loaded question. That's a really good topic, though. Yeah. I think it's really uh, important. I, I, I think... I think Actually, I, David, go ahead and go first. I in the Sky suffers it. from this. Because the whole Bob storyline, and we'll talk about it, I in the Sky would be... It's a huge flaw in this book, is that the first segment should be about Christianity. Right. A and, retired U.S. soldier. I mean, that's... Yeah, like, why would a retired U.S. soldier be into this very niche, like, almost extinct religion from the Middle East? It makes yeah. no sense. And and so the book... Especially when you craft a character who's so strictly adhering to what we consider traditional American values. Right. Yeah. I don't think he would have found that kind of what is what does Dick refer to it as kind of a a forgotten cultish religion. Well, and keep in mind that that the way we'll talk about this more later, but the way that the 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 Bob religion is is kind of characterized is wrong. Yeah, it, it's just not even correct. Right. It's just I not, don't know shit about it. Well, it's, it's so a much it, more inclusive religion than. Than most. So I know a lot about it because it's the only religion I actually in my adulthood like flirted with. So which I'll get to later. You but winked at it. I did more than that. I was I kind of I considered myself a Baha'i. Rubbed for, up against it. You court it. <laughs> well, my first serious you girlfriend like was was a Baha'i. So 
So, so you did. You courted it like that douche from uh, the from Alas All Thinking. Well, <laughs> yeah, but ten years after we broke up, so I'll get into that later. I but. think it's an interesting question, Larry, because I don't. I feel like Dick a lot of the time, maybe in these these earlier books, and and I actually kind of had a, a very. I touched on this briefly with a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine and David's mm-hmm. about being insecure as a writer and kind of when people. Especially then, when somebody they didn't have the option to, you know, there was no print on demand. There's no yeah, create right. space. There's no self publish. I don't know if was there self publishing at this point. No, but not, one not of the really. books, one of the books he talked about. I thought about public. Oh, Cosmic Puppets. He talked about publishing it himself. Yeah, so it's weird. I, I think I that. think Dick was grateful that anyone well, wanted to look books. at these stories to begin with, and and I think he was just trying to be. I think he was just trying to kind of play. Not, I don't know if "play ball" is the right way to phrase it, but I, I think maybe he just wanted to. I, I think well, that he, is, he, I think that might be the right way to to he, phrase it. He he was trying to play ball. Yeah, he was, and, and he was a frustrated writer for a long time. Because and he did was believe Don Wolheim basically saved him. Who isn't a frustrated yeah. writer? Well, that's true. But then that also leads me to a question, <laughs> like a bigger question. And I don't know how David is with this, but for me, I need somebody to tell me if something I've written is is bad or if it could be improved upon or, and, and I've right. gotten feedback where I go, you clearly don't understand what I'm, I'm saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I've gotten feedback where, yeah, it's good and they get it, but they also think it could be better if we had gone down this road. But, but I think, yeah. Well, and right, he you, was, have, you have to make that choice yourself. And I feel like Dick was not at that stage where he made that choice at all. He just, I said, don't think he felt like he you was don't, a, you don't want it to be Christians. I Fine, it's I don't think Christians. he felt like he was in a position to, exactly. to fight against it because maybe there was a fear of them pulling the book and saying, never mind, you're too difficult. We're not going to work yeah. with you. Yeah. And, and that look, might have been the way the industry was back then anyway. And I think all of us as Certainly writers, now. Uh, all of us have writers have changed titles or have, have accepted covers that we weren't happy with. Um, you know, I just, uh, my one book has a bitchin' cover. It, it does. does really. <laughs> so. Well, look, and, and, and I'll be honest, I'm not super fan of the, cover of my most recent book ring of fire um i hate it and and uh <laughs> you know but i, I you know There's other 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 people have told me that they like the cover so whatever but um but i think it works for the book well but i've been spo- but I, I know what your initial idea was so. yeah and i'm um i've been pretty spoiled by a bunch of matt rivera covers on on my books and his covers are amazing so well that gucker cover for amazing punk stories is also pretty awesome yeah yeah thank you but um but yeah you didn't draw it yeah i didn't draw it but it's on my book (laughs) (laughs) but anyways um so the thing is, is we know pkd i have this quote right here that like shows you how much he was looking for validation at the time Because, and listen to this quote, and this is from an interview. I didn't get anything. I got no mail. I got one letter on Eye in the Sky from a guy whose book I had read. Murray T. Boom. Shout out to Murray T. Murray T. Boom was his name. He had written a book on, and that's Newsmatics? Newsmatics? Numsmatic? Newsmatics? On counterfeiting coins. This week on Words with David. <laughs> <laughs> on counterfeiting coins that I had read, and he read Eye in the Sky and said it made it would make a wonderful movie. That was the first fan letter I ever got. So Larry, so Anthony, sorry, David. Anthony, 
you're not alone. PKD was looking for, for, uh, for validation out there too. We all are as writers. I mean, we all want to hear good feedback. So, but he specifically pointed out that that was the first fan letter he ever got. Right. So do you feel Larry that Dick was kind of maybe groveling a little bit or being too much of a pushover when it came to edits to his books? I, I, yeah, I definitely think that in the, in the first couple of books here that he was, but then again, he's also writing outside of normal science fiction of the time. So there, there had to be a balance there. And I don't, I, I think maybe he went too far towards being the sycophantic writer. You know, I'm here to please you. What do you guys consider on this book more than any other? I think. What do did. you guys consider science fiction? Well, of the he time? cut, no, when you think about it, he cut, uh, cosmic puppets down by half. Good lord! So that's, could you imagine that book being longer? I I really can't. But, <laughs> but I also don't know what's in that other half. He so. felt that he made Eye in the Sky better. I have quotes on that, but like, and I definitely think he probably made Cosmic Puppets better. But you never know. I mean, so there was a and this quote will explain some of that. But he he was in the stage at this point in his career where anytime he got a good review, he was writing the person to thank them. Wow. <laughs> and so this was, um, uh, a letter he wrote to a guy named Tony, um, shout out to Tony. Boucher, Tony Boucher. <laughs> Dear Tony, I noticed your encouraging review of eye in the sky and fantasy and science fiction. And of course it made me feel good since you have always taken an interest in my work. Heck, you started me off. You probably won't be too bored if I cry on your shoulder concerning this book and all the rest of it. To tell you that Eye in the Sky is not a terribly recent novel of mine. In fact, it was written before The Man Who Japed. And the reason that it did not appear until now is that nobody wanted to touch it because of various controversial ideas. Don Wolheim at Ace had it a long time ago and returned it with regrets. But evidently, they had put so much into my stuff that they had bought three. They had bought three. They felt that they could go ahead and take a chance. Even so, I had to rewrite large portions of it. But I had new ideas to put in, so I didn't mind. But in fact, I think it came out better, which is an anomaly. Where the real crying on the shoulder comes is at the money point. On a book like... Sorry. On a book like Eye in the Sky, which you seem to feel is a worthy contribution to the field, and thanks for that. I get so little return that it financially isn't really worth it. On a strictly cold-blooded basis, figuring out work hours versus pay, <laughs> and he wrote it in two weeks, right? Um, uh, it, it is a losing struggle at this pay rate, not to mention the holy anger that a writer feels to see his stuff go for peanuts when he knows, he just plain knows, that the stuff is worth far more. Yet again, I say, thank God for Ace. They kept me alive. It hadn't been for them. I'd no longer be in the writing business. As Scott points out, it's one, 1,000 from Ace compared with nothing but talk from other publishers. And here, of course, is the tragedy. No hardcover house was even remotely interested in Eye in the Sky. I did get a letter from the editor-in-chief at Putnam. As I recall saying that they had read it, but it was simply not well enough done to to do on their list. Beyond that, no hardcover house hardcover house said anything at all. 
but I tried for a couple of years. That's the end of the letter. Wow. wow. It was nice that you did a special guest reader, David Lynch, at certain points. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was his letter to Tony? That was a to, fan? To Tony, who was, no, he was an editor who had bought some of his short stories, who had written a review in fantasy and science fiction oh, magazine. Okay. You're probably dead, Tony, but you made PKD's day. Yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't assume he's but dead. But I, I think... But. I, I was surprised to hear that he wrote individual people back, but I think a lot of us do that now. We've quoted those letters before. If, yeah. If I got fan mail right now at this point in my writing career, I would covet it. Right, yeah. but it would be email, so it would be easier. You know, you wouldn't probably wouldn't have to date it unless it's a uh, one of those good smelling wax sealed you know, <laughs> with my initials on it. Yeah, then you'd have to marry that person. I think. Oh, that's the rule. Oh man. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So. Trapped. Now, but see, PKD, but I will say this. For all the things that he said about, like, the pain of doing all this, he did also say that if he could choose one example of a book from his early career to survive World War Three, it would be Eye in the Sky. So. I wouldn't disagree with that up to what we've read so far. Yeah. And so he also has this quote Tony Boucher gave it the best novel of the year rating in another magazine venture. Ted Sturgeon called it the kind of small trickle of good sci-fi, which justifies reading all the worthless stuff. And I would, I would be pretty stoked on some affirmation from Teddy Sturgeon. Yeah. yeah. Right. A letter from Don Wolheim at Ace Books further testifies to everyone's satisfaction with I. Glad you liked the cover, especially the presentation of a high in the sky. We can't keep the cover, the can't keep a copy in the office. Don Wilhelm. That's the last of the quotes about the writing of it, the publication of it that I have. Um, cool. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So, um, but <laughs> looking at all the notes that I, have, <laughs> I have a lot of notes. Let's talk about this story. Yeah, I'm let's talk about the story. story. So, Larry. Yes. What happened in this story? What happened? <laughs> well, let me tell you about it. Let me give you the full breakdown. So the got- story breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm playing the mandolin. I don't okay. think we're on the same page with this story no, breakdown. No, no, not the- <laughs> All right, <laughs> we'll figure something out. All right, all right. So we got this guy, Hamilton, a jackass, like <laughs> pretty much every single one of these main characters. This guy has anger issues. <laughs> Remember how Anthony was in the last episode? That's this guy. This guy just gets pissed off constantly. <laughs> now, initially, we're with him because he goes to work, and the first thing that happens is they accuse his wife of being a communist, which, yeah, that's pretty shitty. That's a then, bad way to start your day. Yeah, and then he's like, well, fucking people, you suck. And then the guy that <laughs> accused him is like, let's go get a beer. And, and, and they're like, nah, beer doesn't sound right. Because you're a fucking asshole. Beer doesn't sound right now. Right now, We're going to go to the Bevatron and watch some shit happen. Instead of beer, we're going to go to the Particle Collider. Yeah. Because that's what everyone does they, in lieu of equate. beer. They equate. It's about the same thing. Yeah. So they go to the Bevatron, there's an accident, and the three of them, uh, McFife, who is the security, head of security for the company that Hamilton works for, Hamilton, 
who is the jackass dickhead uh, missile maker and electrical engineer, and his wife, the maybe communist. And, Isn't her name Marsha? Marsha. Yeah, Marsha. Marsha. And five other people. Marsha may be the communist Hamilton. Hmm. <laughs> yes. I don't know. That's a mouthful. Uh, so they get into this accident with five other people, and they all get burnt up and fly 5,000 feet to the ground. I can't remember. It seems like they all should have died, but they don't die. They end they up They all in... should have gotten Dr. manhattan Yeah, they really should. Yeah. <laughs> Something like Truth. that. And they end up in a, another person's reality. One of the eight people's reality. And they don't know that at first, of course. No. They just... They the just... world changes, and they don't know why. But so, they feel off. All right. Next person that talks is getting shot. <laughs> all right. So they are in this reality with the, the, the Christian slash Bab God... They find out it's dude. Everything sucks. They find out it's dude. <laughs> Everything sucks. Uh, then they're like, oh, we got to kill this guy because he's a jackass. <laughs> and then they go and they whack him on the head and he's knocked out and boom, they're out of it. And then they're in fat old lady territory. Pritchett. And, and she just, <laughs> she just is a pleasant housewife who doesn't want anyone to feel bad about anything. But she loves art. Yeah, and she just wants happiness. What, I mean, what's wrong that, with that? So she eliminates everything that makes her unhappy. Is that Joan? That includes cats, that includes factories, that includes smog, that includes no, sexuality. No, oh, the sexuality. That's some creepy stuff. And then they're like, oh, man, we got to kill this bitch. And then they're like, well... But she like, oh no, if we try, like old dude did, we're just going to get disappeared. And then, so they don't end up killing her, they end up making her kill herself by destroying, or by eliminating everything on the face of the planet that isn't dirt. So, that's how they end up getting out of her world. And then next, you got uh, this sort of uh, librarian type, you know, with a really tight bun and everything and and she is a turns out to be a full-on paranoid delusional character based on his mother by the way oh really yeah based, i have a quote about on, that and it's totally based on dick's mother and she ends up doing some weird shit and making some weird things happen but then her delusions end up destroying her in the end when she makes some of the characters into insects <laughs> as you do and then the final, the final bit is a big communist, you know, uh, revolution happening, and the capitalists are trying to defend their land, and everyone assumes it's Marsha the communist. What is? What did you call her? Marsha the communist Hamilton. Yeah, Marsha the communist Hamilton. But there's a twist. There's, there's a twist. also big slogans turns falling out, out of the sky. Yeah, which is kind of dumb. She. Uh, she that, is a some people like that. She is a big red snapper, and so oh, Larry, please keep it PG. <laughs> um, we gotta stop making that joke because it's from I'm a never, movie. I'm the, never stopping. 
that joke. Let him just let him go. We we took Larry the, off leash. The red snapper. Let him get in there. <laughs> red right. snappers for so, a very obscure movie. That wanted joke. to get his snout all in eye. In the I like that crotch. movie. I like the reference. I'm just yeah. Don't more think people most... need to see that movie. That I'm just guiding them towards that movie. Red herring. <clears throat> right. She's the red snapper, and it turns out that McFife, the Irish cop, McFay, McFife. McFay? There's two F's after the E. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. Anyway, so it turns out it's that dude that's the communist. It's McFife, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then, so they figure out it's McFife. They have this fit, fist fight and everything. Yeah, he turns uh, into goes a back big to guy. normal. Everything goes back to normal after the fist fight. And then nothing happens to McFife. Uh, Hamilton loses his job and goes off with his buddy to go make uh, whatever radios or some shit. <laughs> uh, fucked up ending is what that was. <laughs> yeah, he goes to make radios with his buddy uh, Billy Laws, right? Yeah, Billy Laws. And All that's right. it. That's the story. All right, so let's... I, I, I really like Larry breaking this down. This is my new favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the story breakdown. So, yeah... Here's the thing about I and this guy. There's a lot to unpack here. Cause, yeah. um, but overall, it, it may sound like you're being dismissive, but I think we all, we all kind of like this one. I, this is my favorite that I've read so far. Um, I don't know. It's up there with Japed for me. Yeah. I'm really partial to Solar Lottery just because I love the ideas in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think this is probably the best written one. This is certainly the best written one. Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot to unpack, but, Eye in the Sky is overall, um, what I think the most interesting thing about Eye in the Sky is that it's something that I don't even recall really being repeated very well in that these characters, it seems like they're going to an alternate reality. And so there's a good kind of rope a dope there going on in the story. Ooh, using boxing terminology. Yeah. Right. Where you think that they went to an alternate reality, but what it really is is just, they're living inside people's perceptions. Yeah. So that whole aspect of the book, I think, is really neat that you're not just trapped in, you're not trapped in another dimension, another world. You're just trapped in somebody's thoughts. You're trapped in somebody's mind. Yeah. And I thought and that. how they view the world. Yeah. And so it's very much about how perceptions lie and how perceptions, how, and I think that's really interesting because especially in the world where we're dealing with a lot of people who they get their news from Fox News or or MSNBC or whatever. They get all their news from one source that's very biased. And so they see the world in very much that way. And I think what Eye in the Sky is is a very genius way to make a point about how perceptions create our universe. Create reality. Yeah. So that's really – Kind of cool. Um, yeah, I can't believe he wrote this in two weeks. The, the, thematically, it's really strong. I mean, yeah. the, the things he, I mean, it's just basically a giant bitch fest. But the the bitching he's doing is really appropriate to the time and the place and the things that were going on in the world. McCarthyism, but, you know, integration, all these things that. You know, the, the blind American that doesn't give a shit about anyone or anything other than their own happiness. All these things that he's fighting uh, against. And this book is hilarious. Yeah. Um, this, this book is funnier than Japed, in my opinion. I disagree, but. 
Well, I kind of disagree it, too. It's a it's a matter of opinion. Yeah, but we'll get to some of those parts later that I thought were super funny. But to 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 start off with a McCarthyism thing, this was written one year after the McCarthy trials started and were very public. So in in, in the sense, the McCarthyism parts is current events. It would be much like us writing a novel about like the Trump Russia thing now, right? You know, and so there's this quote. They're talking about how uh, Hamilton was hired in 1949, ten solid years when Ham- Hamilton was young, bright, uh, eager electronics engineer, just bursting out of MIT. But then the attention goes to his wife, and. Well, we sort of asked for it as a routine inquiry. Uh, my God, Jack, there's a file on me. There's even a file on President Nixon. Scandalous. That's well, uh, prescient. That's prescient because Nixon wasn't president yet. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring that up. Um, you don't have to read all that junk, Hamilton said, his voice shaking. Marsha joined the Progressive Party back in 48 when she was a freshman in college. So, um, and then I have this quote from the... From the Rickman book, the High Castle, but the man from the High Castle book that Rickman wrote. So this is Alan Rickman. The Alan Rickman? That's his name, right? The author of the, the PKD film? Greg no, Rickman. No, you're saying Alan Rickman. <laughs> the late actor Alan Rickman? No, Greg Rickman. The late sorry. Severus okay. Snape Alan Rickman? Yeah. The uh, Hans Gruber, Gruber. Alec R- Alan Rickman? Okay, sorry. Greg Rickman. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, Dick was, uh, what he was, pro-American. <laughs> Alright, Giggles. Come on. I can't. Get it together. <laughs> what if, what if PKD wrote Die Hard? <laughs> oh, wow. I'd see that. Um, Dick, Dick what he was, pro-American in the very liberal democratic sense, hostile to the Stalinist left, hostile to McCarthyism as well. Cleo says her husband's own attitude, and that's one of his ex-wives, were liberal, anti-authoritarian, which means he was very anti-communist as well as against the right wing. To the best of my knowledge, he never participated in any political act. His novel, Eye in the Sky, which deals with some of these issues, is at once both anti-communist and anti-loyalty check. So, and so I think there's, there's a lot going on here that like speaks to both sides of how PKD felt about that. Right. So. Well, you can see by by the viewpoint he he uses in the book, he he's not religious or he's anti, you know, the organized religion. He's anti-communism, he's anti uh stupid people. He's anti a lot of a lot of things that he pushes in this book. Yeah, and you know, and he, he eventually deals with racism, which we'll get to. Oh, yeah, and racism. But the only problem is on page 14 is where it starts with the whole, with laws being referred to as... The Negro. The, the Negro. Even after we know his name is Billy Laws in that he's the guide. And that he's a physicist. And, and it, it happens throughout the whole book. I think that's a simple semantic. It does not happen throughout the whole book. Yes, it does. Because it, it, you guys said that, I made sure to look... It's used three times oh, in the no. entire book. It is after. so much more than three times. After the the initial conversation they have where old guy is made out to be the racist, which he is, 
Sure. It's used three times. Well, well, it is, it is an issue because I thought when they named him, I was like, oh, thank God they're not going to refer to him as the Negro again. And he did. Which they, they rarely, he rarely did. Okay. Well, it, it, I mean, he still did it. He still did it. And it's, it's unfortunate because even in 1957, that's, there's no excuse for referring. Yes, there is. That's, 1957 yes. is, yeah, yes, it's the same year as the Little Rock Nine, but they should be, I, I think authors should be, especially. And not 1957, 1955. You said so yourself. Okay, yeah. I mean, he, what are you? Okay, so he wrote in 1955, but even so, I just, I just don't think he should be, I, I just. If you guys looked at the actual writing, what he wrote about the character and what he said about the character instead of concentrating on one word. It's totally different. Well, I understand that, and he does make the, the character is a physicist. He is a smart character. He's a he, character that has agency. He's intelligent. He comes up with a lot of the plans. Yeah, he's also one of the heroes. So, in the you, end, he's the partner of the main character. So, do you think Hamilton defending him constantly is PKD's way of saying just making sure you guys don't think I'm racist? I think no. <laughs> I think that's a good point, but. I think Laws himself defending himself is on page much better. 148. In fact, he says, I'll tell you what, Laws said in a low, unsteady voice. You try being colored a while. You try bowing and saying yes, sir, to any piece of white trash that happens to come along. Some Georgia cracker so ignorant he blows his nose on the floor. So moronic he can't find the men's room without somebody to guide him. Me to guide him there. I practically have to show him how to let down his pants. Try that a while. Try putting yourself through six years of college, washing white man's dishes in a two-bit hash house. I've heard, I've heard about you. Your dad was a big shot psychiatrist. You had plenty of money. You weren't working in any hash house. Try getting a degree the way I did. So yeah, he does defend himself. Yeah, so. yeah, and, and, and very and well. I, and I'm it. not saying you're wrong, Larry. David and I are just assent- is, are just saying it's a little off-putting. Yeah. That's all. Well, then change it to African American, you know, and everything will be fine. Well, yeah. Nah, for once, I'm not the one that's getting angry. Yeah, I know. You know, somebody's well, Mr. Snippy over here. <laughs> you know, it's the Huckleberry Finn argument, right? Well, yeah. I'm offended I, by that word, so fuck this book. I'm not uh, saying. Whoa! 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 We all like the we book. We all like the book. You we guys didn't do. say that. You guys do, but that's not why it's banned at schools and why they've changed the words in the book. Wait, when did they change the words in I in the Sky for <laughs> schools? No, in, in Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, but we're, this isn't the Mark Twain cast. You're talking about the same Twain thing. time. You guys are uncomfortable with it. Other people immediately think, Let, we need to change everything. We I'm not uncomfortable it. with it. I'm just saying, you know what, maybe it's a little awkward for me. It's So yeah, it's a little awkward, but I'm also just asking a simple question, Larry. Yeah, what's the question? Why are you so snippy? Because these semantic things bother me because there's no underlying value be- beneath them. All right, so... <laughs> David. <laughs> um, I think we addressed this issue. Yeah, I, I, so. I would. I will say this. Let, let, me, let me just kind of say this one last thing. I don't think Dick was a racist, but I definitely think he's super sexist. Well, yeah. Okay, but but, but and, again, and my point is, my point is, is that Marsha and the other woman have agency. Well, Marsha, no, Marsha has agency. In kinda, but there's a scene I want to talk about when we get to this point. But my point is, is that I think Dick does do a good job of having Laws defend himself and giving that character agency. 
whereas I don't think Dick kind of prescribes the same kind of opportunity for the female characters to defend themselves like that. Yeah, especially in the end, you're you're right, especially in the end, she just stands there and and that's something that's it. that's throughout every book we've read so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I mean, and he went through, you know, a lot of wives. So let's let's <laughs> be went through <laughs> a lot of wives. But the uh, uh, the that's the thing that I uh, I need to for people to understand is that when we talk about using certain words and everything, it, it's semantically it's painful. But it's also you have to look underneath just the simple word to the value and what's going on with the character themselves. So, yes, he might not have been racist. He still used some uncomfortable words for us, but he was definitely sexist. And no matter what language he used, it was sexist. All right. Cue the wackadoo science theme. (laughs) So uh, on page 14, you want something jaunty. You know. can't. Not everything can be jaunty. So All right. So, <laughs> as as everyone out there knows, we love the wackadoo science and PKD. And on page fourteen, right out, almost right out of the gates, we got some great wackadoo science. As you know, the Belmont Bevatron was constructed by the Atomic Energy Commission for the purpose of advanced research into cosmic ray phenomenon artificially generated within controlled condition. The central element of the Bevatron is a giant magnet whose field accelerates the beam of protons and provides them with increasing ionization. Whatever that means. And so... Yeah, that's all true, David. Yeah, and so they... David's sticky note looks like it says, Whack-a-dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like on the next page, too, it says, at slightly under the velocity of light, how many times do they circle the chamber? Four million times. Their astronomical distance is 300,000 miles. The distance is covered in 1.85 seconds. Mm-hmm. Incredible. This is all like crazy, makes no sense, just is like, has I nothing. Think it's all, I think it's all true, though. Well, it, it may be slightly true of like particle beams, but it's definitely not going to create a situation where you're living in someone's perception. That That is definitely <laughs> wackadoo. Yeah. So he may have had some notes to work off on what a, a particle beam accelerator was, yeah, you know. I, I looked up a Bevatron and then it leads you to an Accelatron. It's like, what is a, what's a Bevatron? Well, it's an Accelatron, duh. And then it, you look up Accelatron and it's like, it's an Exasperton. And then it just leads you to something else. It was really hard to look up. Well, and so, so what happens is eventually they, on page 40, there's, um, there's a part where they realize that they're in, they're still inside the Bevatron. And so maybe we've sunk down to the real reality. Maybe this stuff has been there all the time under the surface. And then Marcia says, we're dead, aren't we? And Hamilton says, we're still in the Bevatron. We're still in Belmont, California, not in the same Belmont. There have been a few changes here and there. So at this point, he thinks that they're just, they're in another universe. And so they're really yeah. trying to figure out where they are at this point. And I think that there's some good moments of, you know, misdirection of, um, which is, you know, something that's, that's good about this novel. Yeah. Um, and the misdirection is really good. 
in that respect. So I think that's one of the things of the narrative here that, that PKD really got right. Because it definitely leads the reader to believe that they are in another universe. And because that's something that he's dealt with before, especially in short stories, I think that the majority of the readers at the time are going to assume that that's what's going on. And certainly I did. Yeah. Right? And the, uh, the ever-changing boss character and the ever-changing hooker character, those are great, uh, signs or, 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 uh, what do you call them? Stamp posts. Yeah. Of, of what, what these universes are like, what these realities are like. And see, to me, one of the reasons why I thought this book was funnier than The Man Who Japed is that there's some really good humor in the parts of this universe. I specifically the, um, when they're talking about his salary and he said, he says, after surprise pause, the personnel director glanced at Tillingford. IBM maintains the book of debts and credits, the cosmic record. He gesticulated, you know, the great unalterable scroll of sins and virtues. Um, yeah. The EDA is doing the Lord's work. Ergo, you're a servant of the Lord. Your pay will be four credits per every ten days, four linear units towards your salvation. IBM will handle all the deal details afterwards. That's why they exist, which I thought was great because <laughs> right. it's God money, right? And then the gang of Aryan thugs, that, right? They come up to him after that. And one of the funniest scenes for me on, on that was on page sixty when the car wouldn't start. Yeah. And uh, opening the glove compartment, <laughs> Hamilton got out his well-thumbed auto repair manual. The thick booklet no longer contained. A schemata of automotive construction that now listed common household prayers. So, right. if you want the car to work, I do like when he prays. He's like, "Lord, uh, uh, cars are cool. Can mine work better?" <laughs> yeah. I guess. Amen. He does so so disdainfully, and it's so right. obvious that he doesn't believe in what he's saying. But he knows that in order to get fo- like move forward, he has to do it. Yeah. Right, and then... And um, being a jealous god has to accept it. And the mechanic is called uh, Nickleton Sons Auto Healing, <laughs> which is great. I yeah. mean... And he looks at it and goes, nope, and keeps on driving. Right. Yeah, the first and second uh, realities they end up in are very funny. Right, and so I, I found myself laughing a lot at this, and I thought um, that this was really PKD's best. Uh, comedy and when they bounce, they get to heaven with the umbrella, McFife and Hamilton. Yeah, and, and they see the eye of God. Well, and, and, and if then you bounce a bunch of times when they, the umbrella sets on fire. If you did wow, not, you guys like that goofy <laughs> shit, huh? Yeah, if you did <laughs> not like thing. the uh, <laughs> Princess Leia scene um, in Last Jedi, you're really gonna hate Eye in the Sky <laughs> when, <laughs> when they fly to the, with an umbrella with an umbrella. They Mary Poppins all the way up to heaven. Yeah, which I thought was hilarious, but um, but yeah, we got to get into, um, I, and I'm I'm trying to to go a little faster through my notes, but um, so the here's the biggest problem that I have with Eye in the Sky is that, and we talked about this earlier that PKD caved in to Don Wilhelm. This was obviously about Christianity in the first draft, yeah, and to change it to to the Bob. Okay, so I have to explain basically my relationship to this is that I the one time that I kind of explored a religion in my life was the Baha'i faith, which is not the same religion 
that they're talking about here in the book, yeah. In the book, but it is a descendant of that religion. The the religion based on the Bab became the Baha'i faith. Because the Bab saw that there was they revealed that there was going to be this prophet that came, and that was Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of the Baha'i faith. So I'm very knowledgeable about the Baha'i faith for two reasons. One, my first serious girlfriend was a Baha'i. <laughs> and ten years later, it wasn't because of her, although Jen is a lovely person. But um, ten years later, um, we or I got into the Baha'i faith. I was... Kind of looking for something. Where were you at? I was living in Ithaca, New York at the time. Okay. Uh, Syracuse, Ithaca. And, uh, part of my time in Indiana, but the, the one thing I couldn't reconcile with the Baha'i faith is they believe very firmly in following the laws of the nation. Yeah. And me being a radical activist, that just, it just didn't, didn't sit well. It didn't sit well with me because I thought like, well, if I was living in Nazi Germany, would I want to, you know, I believe in following all the laws of the nation, right? Right. But here's the thing. He does get some things right about the Baha'i faith and the Bob. He has the actual date where the Bob, like, revealed himself in 1844. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look up details about the Bob and his religion, the whole idea that there would be this one essential way or that there would be one gate in order to get to, to heaven and all that is just not a part of the, the Bob yeah. religion and or the Baha'i faith, the whole thing is kind of, the Baha'i faith is all about every religion teaches the same one essential truth in a different way. So well, it, that's why I say they're one of the more accepting religions on the, on the planet. Exactly. So this part did not make any sense. And the fact that this U.S. retired U.S. serviceman would, would, um, would just, that this, so what's his name? Sylvester? Arthur Sylvester. Yeah, Arthur Sylvester. Yeah, he's a total fucking dick. He's a dick, but he would have been a Christian if anything. He he would not it doesn't make him less of a dick. Yeah. It doesn't make him less of a dick and it's interesting to me that as they kind of go through each one of these alternate perceptions of reality, no one kind of looks at each other with a little bit of disdain after being stuck in their yeah, perceived right. reality. <laughs> they sort of get over it right away. Yeah, it's it's just some kind of interesting. Because I would have told Arthur Sylvester after being stuck in his racist bullshit. Oh, yeah, you would have kicked himself. him in the balls like eight times. Yeah. Yeah. And, old man balls. <laughs> so, yeah, that that part just didn't make sense. And so for me, that's like the weakest thing about Eye in the Sky. Well, and, and since you know so much about the religion, it's going to take you out of the book. It's going to take me out of the book, but I think that it should take, even if you didn't know about the Baha'i faith like I do, I don't think that this part makes sense. I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure it would, it would take someone out of the book. I don't know. Anthony, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I don't know anything about the, what, what's it called? The Baha'i faith? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about it, but what I did feel was odd was that the way PKD refers to it is kind of like some kind of, weirdo cult that mm-hmm. Sylvester picked up over in, when he was in the service or something. Yeah. And it just felt weird because I, I, that was given, forced. given all his other personality traits, I, I agree with David that it would 100% be Christianity. So it is kind of right. weird and off-putting. I yeah. don't know if it took me out of the book though. It definitely stood out. Well, and the other thing too, is he refers to is just this Muslim religion and, the, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and Muslims. Over and yeah. Over. <laughs> 
the Muslims in the hardcore Muslims in Iran are actually slaughtering the Baha'is yeah. right now. It's not, uh, and they have been for like 50 years or more. Same. So it's not a Muslim religion. <laughs> um, otherwise the Muslims would not be murdering them. <laughs> okay. Uh, so now we got the religion. Yeah. So, um, I'm <laughs> sorry. I really want to talk about the fat lady. <laughs> Is that his mom? The one based on his mom? No, Pritchett. Pritchett. Oh, that. No, you're getting Pritchett mixed up with Joan Race, who actually. No, I'm not getting. No, David is. I am. Oh, yeah. 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 No, no, don't worry, Larry. We all know you want to talk about the overweight woman. Okay, so, um, yeah, does it. it, The balloon of a woman? Yeah, talk, talk. Yeah. What do you want to talk about, Larry? So, I think this is the cleverest part of the book, is her section, because she is so innocuous. She's not evil she has no ill intent for anyone she wants to make everyone happy that's all she wants but she it, wants it mostly for herself to be happy well that's what i mean she's she's in a way she's one of the most frustrating one, ones out of all of them yeah she's definitely because she's, the most frustrating she's pushing her happiness on others and stating that well this makes me happy so it's going to now make you happy and you have to accept it it's like being her. stuck in a like a frustrating relationship where the other person forces their values on you and says, right. accept this because this is what I accept. Right, but she's much more a, a Christian person than the old retired vet. You or know, in, in a way. Dude. So this is Pritchett, <laughs> right? Yeah, because yeah. she's she's got all basically all the values of what the perfect Christian society wants. Right. It's just like clean air fresh living, no one talks or thinks about sex, everyone just goes about their business, doing their nice jobs, and everyone's happy. They don't freak out nearly as much as I think, at least I would. Well, Hamilton did. By waking up and realizing that you don't have the parts anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. They kind of just take that. Marsha freaked out a little bit. A little, but but she just, there's a lot of immediate acceptance in all of these kind of realities. I think that's part of it, because once they're in that reality... That's just the way it is. Hmm. I don't know if they have that. I think they're sort of locked halfway into this is just the way it is and and the alternate part of them that says this is fucked up. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean that that whole the whole Pritchett scene is is really um it's interesting. sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny because it's just like the fact that she's eliminating things that just make her uncomfortable. Right. Um, what, but it really, what it does narratively speaking is that it showcases the idea that you're in a perception so much in a, in a really clever way. And it, I, I think from a writing perspective, that's what was really kind of cool about that scene. It, the, it's probably the funniest scene Sells the to concept. me because Hamilton is pushing, Hamilton is such an edgelord. Right. <laughs> in this reality, like when they're in the car, he's and just pushing. He, yeah, and, he, and he's just trolling the entire time. He trolls he's McFife. He's McFife. like, "What have the Irish ever and then, done?" And then the little boy starts complaining. He's like, "And this girl was going to show me something that she had that I didn't have." Right. And then, and then Hamilton and she says, "Didn't have it." Yeah, and Hamilton says something to the effect of, "I could think of a few things to show so and so." He's just trolling the whole time. Yeah. He's so angry about everything all the time. Yeah. I, love that. I love that about him. I hated the character, but I love yeah. that he was so angry. He's a massive He would just douche. go off on someone for no reason. Like he did with Miss Reese. Oh, with the in, cat. In the beginning? 
Yeah. yeah. He's just like berating her into a corner for no reason. Well, cause I think her, her dislike of cats felt like an attack on him. Right. You know, so he felt the urge to push it, which disgustingly I get. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah I, if it was a dog, I'd probably feel the same way. So it, for Pritchett's... You're a monster. For Pritchett's universe, <laughs> in this world, uh, let's see. In this world, the category car horn had been abolished. And in the thick homeward bound traffic, there should be, there, where there should be a constant din. In the cleaning up of the ills of the world, Edith Pritchett eradicated not merely objects, but whole classes of objects. Probably at some remote time and place, she had been annoyed by a honking horn. Now, in her pleasant fantasy version of the world, such things simply weren't. (laughs) Yeah. Simply weren't. They simply weren't. Which I thought was a cool, cool part. I, you know, I, uh, had, had marked that aside. But, um, yeah, Pritchett is, is a really interesting character. Um, and definitely, I think, sells the narrative. So. Yeah. Writing-wise, yeah, I was cool with that. I was surprised that she never eliminated her son. I thought that was a... It's good that she didn't. But he was like... The son was really asking for it. And obnoxious, who she referred to as a filthy pervert. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Must have learned it from your dad. Now, so the Joan Reese character in her world... Now, there's... I have this quote about her from Greg... (laughs) Rickman. Shout out to Greg. Oh, that's not one of those. Greg Rickman. Yeah, shout out to Greg Rickman. Um, or take Phil's extremely conflicted feelings towards his mother. As allegorized in his fiction, Joan Reese and Eye in the Sky is assigned many of Dorothy's superficial characteristics. Characteristics, Brisk and severe, she strode into the living room dressed in a strict gray business suit. Low heels, horn room glasses. She even, like Dorothy, reads The New Yorker. Yet, the story reveals her as a paranoid. Worse, in her fantasy universe, out of Joan's mind, the novel's characters inhabit two chapters of the novel. Joan consigns the novel's protagonist, Jack Hamilton, first to an attack by a great spider hidden in his home's basement, Mm -hmm. and then to the near consumption by his house, which we talked about yesterday. Um... Which features a man... Monster house. Yeah, the monster house, which takes on the man's features and tries to swallow him. As he and his friends try to escape the house creature and the warm, wet flesh of the creature's mouth, Jack despairingly looks at the dim flicker of the stars beyond the window and tiny spots of brilliance um, a long way off. So the house creature was one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. You mean the giant spider? Yeah. Well... well the house or the spider? The house creature. Yeah. And so, and that was in Joan Reese's world. Oh, okay, sorry. I got mixed up with the, when she turns Silky into a spider. Right. Right. And, but I thought that was a great moment of horror. The, the, the house. That whole chapter of, of uh, Joan Reese's is pure horror. Actually, the transition from so Pritchett's, Freudian. From Pritchett's <laughs> reality to Joan's reality is actually my favorite part of the book. Yeah. Which, do you, go do ahead, you have David. that, uh, Oh, I do. I do you have that my... quote of the uh, of what she says, the whisper? That oh, she yeah, has? this whole thing is, but it's my favorite part of the book. But let, you... I'll, yeah, David, go first. So oh. the world's layer of atmosphere swept out of existence, his lungs totally empty. Hamilton descended into a crashing blur of death. 
As the universe ebbed around him, he saw the inert form of Edith Pritchett roll over in a reflective spasm. Her consciousness and personality fled. They had won. Her grip was on them was gone, but they put an end to her. And then, where's the... Uh, yeah. There's the voice of... And then the chapter ends with... No, no, no. No, you can't read that part without reading the rest of it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, just... You but just, I, I just want to say that... Sit down. The all of these all of these chapters read like Twilight Zone episodes. All of these realities, yeah, could easily be Twilight Zones, and some of them kind of were. Miss Pritchett's uh, reality was definitely Anthony wishing it into the cornfield. You know the the whatever that episode was called. Could you imagine if I had that power? <laughs> oh man. I know some people that would not make it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> All right, go ahead. No, so what David is talking about is it's one of the best trans it's the first time in reading these books and where I was where I had to sit down and go, man, I had to reread it because it's it's really the last one, two, three, four, five, six like six six or so paragraphs, like it's after they've kind of banished Mrs. Pritchett out of her own world and they're stuck in this kind of like as David was saying, this weird what's like a dull gray Right. You know, and uh, I, I'll mention that I read that and I had to read it to Marty. It's that awesome. whole section, <laughs> I was like, "You have to hear this." It's it's a little long, so Go everybody just bear with us. Were they back in the Bevatron? A brief, thrilling flicker of joy touched him, and then it slipped away. No, this was not the Bevatron. In his throat, a slow, bubbling wail formed, forcing its way up and out of his mouth desperately. Feebly, he struggled to creep away from the thing that loomed over him, the slender, bone-like shell of life that gradually crumpled into itself until it was bending down close to him. In his ear, its dry, plucking whisper began. Vibrating dully, the sound drummed and echoed at him, coming again and again, until he had stopped trying to scream it down, had stopped his futile effort to push it away. Thank you, it breathed metallically. You did your part very well. It happened just as I planned. Get away, he shrieked. I'll get away, the voice promised. I want you to get up and go about your business. I want to watch you. All of you are very interesting. I've been watching you a long time, but not the way I want. I want to watch you close up. I want to watch you every minute. I want to see everything you do. I want to be around you, right inside you, where I can get at you when I need to. I want to be able to touch you. I want to be able to make you do things. I want to see how you react. I want. I want. Now he knew where he was. He knew whose world they were in. He recognized the calm, metallic whisper that beat relentlessly into his ears and brain. It was the voice of Joan Reese. And that's the best fucking scene in this book for me. Yeah. It's, it's great. great. It's really well done. Yeah. And wow. especially if you know the issues that he's trying to express with his mom, <laughs> you know, that, um, yeah, it's, it's truly, it, it's a powerfully written scene. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. And frightening. Yeah. 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 As is evidenced by every single character, it, it, you know, it, wait, it, as they wake up, they're like, what the hell And it's funny because I don't know, I think David saw Annihilation. I don't know if you saw it, Larry. No, I haven't but seen the, it. But the way I pictured her in this is how that alien being is kind of shown at the end of Annihilation, and I pictured it like that before Which I saw Annihilation. 
shouldn't have even known was an alien, but that's the problem of the movie. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's the problem of that movie. But go on. <laughs> I just pictured her as kind of this formless, like thin shape. Yeah, they kind of came into form as mm-hmm. as yeah, yeah. It's great. There's a lot of really interesting. I mean, I think this is really PKD coming into form as a writer. Yeah, definitely. There's a scene where he gives a clue that they're not in any actual real universe, which was, I thought, another brilliant scene of writing on page 94 of the Mariner edition. Um, and it says, as far as I'm concerned, this is an absolutely crackpot universe. A moon the size of a pea? It's absurd. Geocentric, the sun revolving around the earth? It's primitive. This whole archaic, non-Western concept of God. This old man showering down coins and snakes, loosing plagues of boils. This was, like, when he starts describing the universe doesn't even look right or work right, it's a really subtle part, but it shows that he's, like, just giving out dabs of little bits of information to let you know what's happening. And it was very, um, cleverly done. And so, and I thought that was great. And there was also on 110, there's, um, some mechanics of the perception of the universe, but it's also the scene where you first see the eye in the sky of the title with the, um, tetragrammaton. Right. Right. Cause it's Sylvester's, you know, Vision, he says, so Hamilton says it on the page before at 110, he says, the eight of us, Hamilton said, seven were knocked unconscious by the impact of the fall. One of us remained conscious. That was you, saying to Sylvester. And then, um, a white man, if the second Bob or whatever it's called, the Tetragrammaton, rub it. <laughs> Rubbish, you invented, can sit back and listen to what you say. He's more of a worthless, broken-down travesty of a god than you are of a man, which is saying a lot. Nice. Yeah. He was no longer a man. He was a Sylvester. He was an avenging force that transcended humanity. And so this is when he, like, in his in his perception, becomes this, like, crazy weird angel. Right. <laughs> and then, I think it was on 113 was when, yeah, uh, the angel... The first angel descended to deliver cosmic justice. <laughs> judgment. Cosmic judgment. Hamilton knocked it cold. But yeah, so there was this weird fucking angels that came flying out of... Out of the TV? Out of the TV. So I thought that was really great and creative, like, writing too. Really good stuff. That's, you know, that is where PKD really comes into form as a writer. And then on page 116, from chapter 8 to chapter 9, there's a really awesome transition that I think writers can get a lot from. Because that's where the reveal happens. This isn't Sylvester's world either, Hamilton told them. It's somebody else's, some third party. Good Lord, we'll never get back. Agonized, he appealed to the stunned figures around him. How many worlds are there? How many times is this going to happen? End of chapter. Right. Great transition. Really, really good stuff. I don't think we were seeing him in, in earlier works, like, really just, like, like landing these... Yeah, he, he wasn't nailing it like, like he did in this book. And he yeah. may have written other books that came out, you know, later, before, the, whatever, but I think even some of these things were happening in the final drafts. Yeah, we've seen a lot of good writing from him in other books, like sections... Of really good writing, but this one has much more of it. I think this it's is much the most more clean. consistent yeah. book. 
of everything we've read so far. Yeah. Although, although I think Second Variety is probably my favorite example of Dick at his best writing. Right. But yeah. Well, and and so that we I, have so far. So right? far, yeah. Yeah. So, and then the house creature scene. The reason why I was confused is because I thought it was on one seventy two, but it's on two hundred. Under them, the carpet stirred violently, a worn, spongy surface. It was already becoming moist. Stumbling up, Hamilton collided with the wall and recoiled. The wall dripped a thick ooze of wetness, an avid leaking sheet of anticipatory saliva. The house creature was getting ready to feed. This was, That was a great scene of horror, too. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. When they have to rip open the, like, it, it's considered the skin of the house. In yeah. order to find the door, the mouth to get out. The warm, wet flesh of the creature's mouth billowed and pushed against Hamilton. The pressure of it sent shudders of revulsion through him. The doorway became smaller as the walls squeezed it shut. Only a tiny slit remained like lips. The walls had pressed together, closing it out of existence. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> really great stuff. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Uh, you know, this is, and look, a lot and then, of, pe- then the three characters becoming, uh, bugs. Do you have anything about that? When they turn into wasps or insects I, of some sort? I don't, but I actually have another really great moment of horror. I don't know how you guys felt about it, but, um, it's, they're still in Joan Race's world mm-hmm. and they go home and they find their cat. Oh, the inside of cat. Oh man. Where? <laughs> <laughs> The thing on the floor was Ninny Numcat. He had been turned inside out, but he was still alive. The tangled mess was a still-functioning organism. Miss Race had seen to that. She was not going to let the animal get away. Quivering, palpitating, the moistly shining blob of bones and tissue was undulating sightlessly across the kitchen floor. Its slow, steady progress had been going on for some time, probably since Miss Race's world had come into existence. Their grotesque mass in three and a half hours had managed to drag itself in a kind of peristaltic wave halfway across the kitchen. That's yeah. pretty gnarly. Yeah, and then is. he goes on, and then he goes on to uh, put it in a bucket full of water and drown it so as a mercy kill. And, and then he buries that, it. Yeah, yeah. That, even that section is just harsh. I'm not a cat lover, but I that is just bad. That is like. I want, I want special guest director right David Cronenberg for that scene. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> well, and you know, it's really funny because we totally spaced one aspect of the writing and publishing history of this, but it comes back to what we're all talking about right now, which is this was PKD's first time um, being published alone. Yeah. In a book. I this was going to ask you about that. This yeah, one this was this a, a standalone. Oh, yeah, it's the first non-ace double. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a hardcover that doesn't go with anybody else, and I think it's because... Of everything we're saying right now, this is this is a really well written book, and and so when people a lot of times malign the early PKD, saying that that the early books don't stand up with the with your stigmatas or mm-hmm. your high castles and whatever, uh, yeah, I think Guy in the Sky is every bit as good as as some of the later ones that I read in, in many regards, and and much like. All the other ones that we, except for Cosmic Puppets, I like it more the more we're talking about it. Did you say Cosmic Puppets? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I yeah. heard it as Cosmic Muppets. <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I really didn't like that one, guys. No, me either. Yeah, so this was really great and reaffirming after Cosmic Puppets that um, bzz, bzz. 
<laughs> so uh, bringing it back here we th- not, we, do not have th- a, we do have a problem with this book though yes we uh, have at least a couple I problems do. I, at least i do okay larry what are your what, what's your problem i got I found, several problems i found the end the from the time they go into the bar the final time they go into the bar to the last sentence just boring as shit it's not the best ending for a book that has so many great parts leading up to it. It's pretty weak. And I was yeah. and of course, like everyone else, I was hoping to see the other four people what their realities would be. Maybe so that's he, in an earlier draft. It, if he's doing it like it's going faster the 80, and faster. Word draft. <laughs> but no, if it's going faster and faster, then everyone's perception you know, would be perception shorter. would be shorter yeah. and shorter. And that should have been in there. Yeah, and so so one things that were interesting. The perceptions of communism were based on like American stereotypes of communism, yeah, which was interesting. And then you had the falling slogans from the sky, which apparently Anthony is <laughs> making a hand motion. Is he poo pooing? He's poo pooing. Uh, Damon Knight actually referred to that scene as hilarious in his review, and so, so. goofy. I don't like slapstick or goofy kind of. Stuff like that. That's no? just not my type of humor. Okay. Yeah, but it worked so well in the auto healing, like that that scene. That was pretty slapstick. It was pretty funny, right? But 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 look, that stuff. The ending again didn't land quite as well. I think the ending is why I would give it four stars instead of five. Mm. But um, oh, okay, sorry, sorry, four tetragrammatons out of. <laughs> Out of five. Um, That's not my rating system. Oh, well, we'll find out what that is. Um, but, uh, so anyways, that's probably... I'm giving wh- it three sexless bodies out of five. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but there are other things. Um, uh, there, on page 204, there was a scene that just really grossed me out in the wrong way. In the um, wrong way? In the wrong way. Okay. Okay, this is a, every bit as creepy and wrong as the the stuff in Cosmic Puppets. But we've got to kill her eventually, eventually Mick, Mick Fife pointed out. After we have our pleasure. She killed my mother, David Pritchett said in a small vibra- vibrating mm-hmm. voice. Yeah. Before any of them could catch him, he sprinted forward, crouched, and leaped onto the swaying cocoon, extending a protruding feeding tube. He pushed aside the strands of the cocoon, tore away the woman's dress, and greedily drilled into her pale flesh. Very shortly, he 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 probed deep into the moistures of her body. And I just moistures. wrote. You can see I wrote with my highlighter. What the fuck wrong? <laughs> I don't I don't see it as uh, as wrong. I mean, it fits perfectly with the rest of the horror that's going on there. It, it just seems like kind of a random. Do you think it's, it's too very, sexual and it's, it's too language? rapey? It's too rapey yeah. for me, and 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 so I d- I didn't like that. But there is no sexuality about it, like specifically. It's weird because it's the exact opposite end of the spectrum from this part that I thought was just. It's so tame. Creepy wrong, huh? Creepy wrong, or it just what? felt like ugh, kind of cringy. Yeah. Leaning across the table toward the girl, Hamilton said. What do you say we get the heck out of here? 
Let's go park on some back road and have sexual intercourse. What? Right. What? <laughs> Who talks I like that? that. <laughs> I was just kind of, ugh. You know he doesn't mean it. That guy is so angry. He's just being a pissed off asshole. I know, but it's just, who, the way he says it, like, hey, let's go have some sexual intercourse. Okay. Well, and it's and so I, I have my own. I have my own in this one, which is the section when he takes the sexless, uh, What's whatever her name oh, is? Oh, Silky. When they go Silky, to listen to and he goes listen down to records, to listen to records. He tells his wife, "I'm going to go have sexual intercourse with this woman," and she's like, "You can't do that. She doesn't even have a thingy." And he's <laughs> like, "Whatever, I'm doing it." And he takes her down there, yeah. and, and she tries to please him. But okay. that leads me and to he, the other problem and I have with. Wait, wait, and wait, he makes though. a joke out Be- of it. Before you do that, even worse, page two twenty two of the Mariner edition. Gazing with unabashed awe at the girl's distended, almost mystically upraised bosom, Hamilton said, I guess the bra is a capitalist trick designed to deceive the masses. (laughs) Talk about masses, Marcia said. (laughs) (laughs) Half-heartedly. But the sight had robbed her of any real spirit. You must have trouble finding things you've dropped. (laughs) <laughs> in a communist society, laws announced, the proletariat never drops anything. That reminds me of like a Yakov Smirnov joke there. <laughs> it's terrible. In Soviet Russia, yeah. dropping grabs you. I don't know. Right. I totally. And um, Hamilton said, blood-sucking vampire of Wall Street versus the heroic, clear-eyed, jolly-singing workman. Which actually, you know, there's actually some like political message in there but yeah. it's like in a boob joke <laughs> it's in well, a it is, terrible have you boob forgotten joke. how the cosmic puppets ended? i did not forget how it, it ended it that's McFife's, exactly what it is mcfife's world so but you can see i wrote with my highlighter the word stupid <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's interesting because one of the things i i was gonna bring up and i i forgot to mark off places in the book where this happened so maybe if one of you has it already he is constantly trying to fuck these women it, when he knows he can't but then shaming them for not being able to sleep yeah. with him it's f- fucking ridiculous Weird. I, I there's a scene where or just he's just an asshole yeah. to to Marsha when she at some point she says something to the effect of oh well I understand you know it's it, I really did it in and he says some she says, makes it sound like something's her fault and he goes yeah well, you know, it's fine. It's just who you are. You suck. Yeah, right. You you couldn't have done anything. It's the world we live in. And well, yeah, but the, he's uh, like he's like saying, yeah, it's your fault. But eh. are you talking about the part where they've just gotten out of Pritchett's world and <laughs> she gets her body back and she's like, well, remember when you used to play songs for me down in that's, the that's one audio of the scenes. room? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and he's like, yeah, I ain't doing that shit, bitch. <laughs> Whoa, up big time. You fucked up big time. Yeah, and I don't know why. It's not her fault. No. But he's such an asshole about it. That is one of the worst things about this book. Yeah. And it's also kind of funny that he's such an asshole. But it's also one of the worst things about this book is I did not like Hamilton. No, he's a... a, I like uh, uh, some of the other characters, but I did not like him. He is a prime grade A prick. Right? All right. All right, so if you had your own world to make and... uh, these were your four choices that are laid out before us. Which one would you most likely? Which one would most likely be your world? Which one would I accept out of these four? Out of these four? Oh, yeah. Fuck, they're all awful in their own way. Right, just like all the realities in Dick's movies. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess if I had to, I'd go to the weird stereotype communist one, I guess. Huh. But I I don't think I would want to be in any of them. I definitely wouldn't want to be in the weird sexless one and the, you know, uh, the super, the the fake Baha'i one. Right. <laughs> you know? I might just, surprise you guys. Oh, no. Yeah, what do you got? I'm, I'll probably go, I'll probably go with the fake Baha'i one. Hmm. Because, oh, you because I can bullshit my way through the yeah, rest of bullshit, my life by pretending to be religious. As 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 evidenced by this comment, it's it's when they he first meets uh, Silky in the bar with McFife, and she <clears throat> she's trying to get him out of the bar. Fondly, the girl tugged at his arm, half pulling him from his precarious stool. Come on, baby, let's go where we can worship in private. <laughs> I have a few rituals you might like to try. <laughs> Will I go to hell for it? Not if you know the right people. So, so yeah, I can just bullshit my way through this this existence and get what I want. Right. So you know what? I'm gonna choose that one if I have to pick one of these shitty universes yeah. or and realities. You can pray at the vending machine. I, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh uh, yeah. You, and you can make you a, a never-ending flow of booze. And I can make my car run by just saying, "Hey, God, could you help me out?" It's probably the best. Yeah, the, but I'm, the I'm still going with it's the most me, opportunistic one. Yeah, I'm the still bus going to make me late in this world. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would have been like, "Bus, please, God, make the bus show up on time." Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, um, wait. What about me? Fuck yeah. face. Oh yeah. Where do you want to go, Larry? I want to go to the Pritchett world. Why? I want everything to be pleasant. Ah, uh, but there's no sex. Yeah. Whatever. I'm old. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Oh. You're talking about going now, right? Not not living there your whole life. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well. I mean, I was going to ask you guys to make your own world, but that we should have talked about that before. No, that, that's, going. I mean, that's, that's way too intense. Yeah. And I definitely don't want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I know what he was going to say, <laughs> fucking asshole. Because well, he, said, he said, I definitely don't want to go. And then he paused and he looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, if the Bevatron were to fall on Larry's apartment while we were recording this... <laughs> Assuming he didn't crush us to death. Right. Um, yeah, it would be it would be interesting to see which one goes first and how we mm. survive through. And I know Larry's would be but like here's... a smoke-filled club before the smoking band in Portland. But... Oh, and there's a lot of drinking, too. Yeah. But the, uh, the thing is... What he did write in this book is that no one's singular reality is good. Right. And no one, even outside this story, you can take everyone in this, on this planet, that their, their singular reality, their singular perception is not going to be happy for everyone. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, that's, and that's a, like a universal truth that he just sort of stuck in there on the side. Yeah. Which I I liked about it. Yeah, which is what makes yeah, the book um pretty cool. And so in in review, um how many tetragrammatons out of five do we all give this book? I already kinda said it. I give it four out right. of five tetragrammaton eyes in the sky. I will give it four tetragrammatons. Huh? Or four inside out kitties. All right, I'm giving four house creatures out of five. Like I said before, I'm giving it three naked, sexless bodies (laughs) out of five. Out of five. 
Wow. Larry has the lowest. I didn't like the main character. I didn't like the ending. I wanted to see all eight characters' realities. Those are my reasons. I I have similar feelings to yours, Larry, but I felt like the writing was such an improvement from what we've read so far in those scenes that really stand out to me. I felt were good enough to elevate it to Mm -hmm. that next Inside Out cat. Yeah. Um... Overall, yeah, I, I, I think yeah, this is I a, mean, I had a I ton of problems at, with this book. I tried sure, I to look at each book separately without reflecting on it as it stands in the Pantheon. Okay. You know, but mm-hmm. it's it's very hard to do, especially when we're doing it like this. Well, and I, one and after I, I may not, I may not like all the, the, the communist world with the slogans falling out of the sky and I, it's kind of dumb and the ending is, is stupid. Right. But I fucking love most of this book the and the ideas and the kind of just the whole concept of it in general, I thought it, I thought was really great. And so, four Inside Out Kitties. Yeah, yeah, four Tetragonometons out of five because as much as I had huge problems with the fact that it should have been Christianity, that's that's my biggest problem with Eye in the Sky hmm. is that it makes no sense for the religion to be what it is. Right, and I that's my hugest. My biggest problem, but I think the narrative is so well done and there's so so many things that are going right that it makes up for the things that are bad, including the fucking dumb boob joke at the end, <laughs> which makes this two in a row. Well, I think PKD was probably a fan I don't know. Of, of what I'm starting we... to think it might be you, David. What is a good boob joke? Oh, there, I'm you... sure there's a good boob joke somewhere, uh. but... But the not right. these. So are we are we doing the casting or so adaptation? Yeah, so, yeah. David. Adaptation? How do we do this as a movie? No, you go first because you you actually have an idea. I struggled with this, and I don't know if he'd knock it out of the park or do a good job at all. But I kind of like this director's exploration of weirdly alternate, war, like alternate not realities, but and it, I I just kind of like. The way he presents a skewed America sometimes. Oh, who the fuck is it? <laughs> I would like to see Mike Judge adapt this. Oh, wow. Whoa! I told you! Ah. I told you it was a weird choice! But because of things like idiocracy and yeah. and kind of the deadpan humor of Office Space, right. I would be interested mm. in seeing how Mike Judge handles something maybe a little bit more surreal than what we're used to, yeah. but... I that that would be it's not a bad choice. That would be my my pick for an adaptation. So, uh, I hate to do this, but I'm gonna have a. Well, no, Larry, you go ahead because I got to look up because I don't know the guy's name, but I know his. Oh, okay. So well, since I've thought about this so much, (laughs) (laughs) obviously you and I did Uh, not think about this much. No, uh, I would I would like this to be one of those uh, sort of Tarantino esque anthology movies where you get a bunch of different directors to direct each reality and then another director kind of directs the framing device yeah the framing device the the overall the through through line line. okay i could get into that and uh, you know i'm oh kind of like it it would take some time to break down which director i would want for each section but oh kind of like how like um, like i would want uh wes anderson to do the pritchett one um Fuck like, Wes Anderson. W- <laughs> yeah, on every I level. I would like... What the fuck? Yeah, we're haters over here. Oh, I, I will hate on Wes Anderson movies all day long. That's fine. Anyway. <laughs> you're wrong. But anyway. 
The, um, I'm a quirky upscale family dealing with my quirky problems. Uh huh. Go on, Larry. Wow. Anyway. So, <laughs> so that I would have him do that section. I think he would do it really well. Uh, maybe Tim Burton to do the, the Reese section. Uh, I don't know about the, the other two. I'd have to think about them a little more. I want Alex Garland to do the Reese section, but I, I like where you're going with this. Yeah, just sort of – I'm not looking for anything like uh, really out there, but the sort of people that really nail that kind of narrative. Um, David, what do you got? Um, okay, so my first pick would be Juan Carlos Frizzandalo. Frazandillo? Fresnandillo. Fresnandillo. Okay. <laughs> no, Dio. I don't know if you say the L's in this instance. Okay. Well, he is most known for directing 28 Weeks Later, but that's not the movie that I'm thinking of. Ooh. Garbage. <laughs> I, I actually like 28 Weeks Later, but that's a different podcast. Garbage. <laughs> but he also directed Enacto, which was um, like his first Spanish film, and there's a lot of things visually in that movie that I think... I don't know that one. Could lead to... I think he could do a really good alternate reality. But my first choice was um, uh, J.A. Bonia. Bonia? I'm going all Spanish. I don't know why. Hmm. Um, but he's the director of the new Jurassic World. But he's most known for doing The Orphanage, The Impossible, The Monster Calls. Um, and I think he would have a really good... St- like make an unreality. Right. And um whoever I like the orphanage. Whoever but more importantly than who you get to direct it is who's designing the sets for this. Because right. I would set it in the fifties and I would do it all in period. Wow. And and I would do it with um like a kind of shape of water look to it. So whoever Guillermo got to design the the sets and everything for right. shape of whoever water, that artistic director was whoever the, the, that's what the kind of look that I, I would want the Bevatron to look like a fifties Bevatron, you know, and I would want, I, I would, so what it, I haven't seen that movie yet. The shape of water. Is it like a little bit steampunk, but a little bit, no, like it's just sci-fi. it's just a very dark and grimy look of the fifties. Oh, okay. It's very noir look to oh, it. Really? it. And and what I would do is, I would fix the the religion in it. It would be Christianity in it, <laughs> obviously, right? And that would be the major change that I would make as far as. But <laughs> I I think I you could be kind of. Faithful. I don't really think that's a major change. Well, no, but in the end, but I think that the way the film would work is that I think you would have to have a, I, I agree with you, they would have to be very highly stylized for each world. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a weird way, I would want the least stylized to be the first one because I would want people who had not read the book to fall for the same trick. Right. And so, um, and I think that what you would have to play with is that the different characters knowing that their, their perception is guiding the world they're all living in would that they would become more monstrous in how they, I mean, that's kind of what the book does is that once they know, you know how they're doing that. But, um, I think Joan Reese, the, the, the casting of her would be super important because you'd want to make sure that you had, um, kind of 
scary mom like thing. So, so what you're saying is Joan Reese is going to be played by Tilda Swinton. <laughs> that would be awesome. Arthur yeah. Sylvester, I'm going to need more of to a, be played by Alan. See, Arthur. I in in my mind, I saw her or as more of a, a Shia LaBeouf. I don't know. I'm tightly bound <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. That's who mm, I saw as, I, as the character. Yeah, I don't like her as much as I like Tilda Swinton. <laughs> I mean, oh. I, I I would have to the, look okay. at the the cast of characters kind of one at a time and right and really think about it. Really think about it. But I think um, and and personally, uh, Hamilton should be kind of a square jawed jackass, but somebody who could be which is not how I saw him at all. You kind of saw him as like a fuzzy. I saw him more of a like a a short. Uh, a short guy, a short, good-looking guy, but with like that little man complex, where he's like, <laughs> "I gotta, I'm so angry." So, so you're so saying Danny DeVito? Dan- no, <laughs> no, I'm saying Daniel I, I, Radcliffe. Oh, okay. I saw him as John Ham. Oh, that's really? funny. I was thinking John Ham too. I, that's like seriously, huh. you read my mind. Like that's weird. Um, John- you know, would be cool, and this is a totally self-indulgent thing, and Larry's not going to care. But if the three guys who accost Hamilton outside of the uh, the place that he tries to get a job at were played by the guys from the Flophouse, that'd be pretty cool. All right, yeah, that would be amazing. Fuck off. Let's talk about that more. <laughs> Anyways, I think uh, let me give sh- my shout out. Shout out! Shout out to the Bob House. <laughs> the Bob House. <laughs> the Bob Podcast. All right, You're what are we doing worst. next? Uh, what book are we doing next? Next time on Dickheads, we're doing... Well, first we're doing a movie episode. What movie are we doing, David? We're doing Human Is. All right. Which is actually an episode of uh, Phil K. Dick's Electric Dreams, and we're going to read the story first. And, um... Oh, and uh, another appearance will be, I will be on the Science Fiction Fantasy Audio Podcast, SFF, doing Father Thing from Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams and the short story. So, but that's a different podcast, but we'll tweet about it. Yeah. So, so the next book episode is going to be Philip K. Dick's Time Out of Joint. Join, 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 join. <laughs> Raggle Gum has a unique job. Every day, he wins a newspaper contest, and when he isn't consulting his charts and tables, he enjoys his life in a small town in 1959. At least, that's what he thinks. But then strange things start happening. He finds a phone book where all the numbers have been disconnected, and a magazine article about a famous starlet named Marilyn Monroe, whom he's never heard of. Plus, everyday objects are beginning to disappear and are replaced by strips of paper with words written on them like, Bowl of Flowers and Soft Drink Stand. When Raggle skips town to try to find the cause of these bizarre occurrences, his discovery can make him question everything he has ever known. I'll be honest with you, if this weren't a Philip K. Dick book and I read this back copy, I would fucking hard pass. <laughs> well, it's it's really well respected. I yeah. haven't read this one yet either. I haven't read it either, but are we going to have a guest for this episode, David? Uh, we're working on it. Uh, Renee Pickup is a writer, uh, is is on our radar, and we were hoping to have her on the podcast as well. So we'll have a guest dickhead um, in the studio, hopefully. Cool. Uh, it's not confirmed yet, so we got to hit her up with the date and see if she can do it. But well, Let's keep piling the promises on. Yeah. <laughs> We've been promising guests for the last Every however many episodes. <laughs> yeah. 
but we're we're gonna do we it. We do sometime. we do have a couple of interviews that we've got in the books that I'm just getting around to the technical stuff. We have a bunch of other little things that'll show up on YouTube here and there. Yeah, we've got a lot of stuff. we've got a lot of stuff happening. It's just I got to get off my lazy ass and do it. Okay, so the two interviews that are coming up, one we already pitched was uh, Weston Oaks, the author of Crud Live, Seal, Te- Seal Team 666, and Burning Sky. And the other one is Evan Lamp, who is um, a podcaster and blogger. Who, and uh, true dickhead. True dickhead. Gets really nerdy on the history. He's a historian and goes really deep on the first five books through Eye in the Sky with us so we're gonna probably have evan back on when we get to 10 and maybe every five books we'll yeah check in with him yeah um i think you're really gonna like that discussion because it gets really really nerdy um it's just me and evan but larry was listening so larry what'd you think of that i'm not invited to any of the supplemental episodes well you work for a living or something uh actually anthony's gonna be in a supplemental or invited to do anything else you're going to be in some you're, of the interviews. You're doing you're, one of the interviews. But that's only because I don't like you. Anyways. Oh, I thought it was because people only talk to David and not us. <laughs> I'm kidding. Continue. Anyways, um, th- th- I think that's about it. Uh, yeah, keep this it is, real. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. But Keep it paranoid. Oh, yeah. Keep it paranoid. Keep it <laughs> paranoid. Good night. I thought it was make it parent. Wait, good night. <laughs>